Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. I have to say, we look pretty good for our age. It's episode 250 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So happy this week. 250 episodes. Never could have gotten here without you. Whether you've listened just a couple of times, you've been listening from the beginning, or whenever you pick this up, every second that you've listened, I cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate it. And I love doing this, and I'm going to keep doing this as long as you want me to be doing this, as a matter of fact. I'm just having the time of my life, and I'm, I just thank you for being along for the ride every week. And got a big show this week, a double dose of interview goodness. Going to start it off by talking about, talking to McKinley Belcher III about The Passage. Anthony Carter's got a big episode coming up on The Passage this week, so we'll talk to him about that. And if that wasn't enough, Going to be talking about the final season of Gotham, making his return to the show this week. It's Robin Lord Taylor to talk about everything that's going on with Oswald and his thoughts on this final season. And, you know, it just wouldn't be a milestone episode without us talking about Gotham, right? That's happened a couple of times before already. Sounds like we've got a lot to get to, so let's dive in. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is the writer Mark Russell, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to slide out the long box, fire up the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And another Star Trek crossover is in our midst right now. It's Star Trek The Q Conflict, number one from IDW. Some of these names this week rock me to my very core. So I'm going to do my best here. Scott and David Tipton are writing this. David Messina on the pencils. Elisabetta Diamico on the inks. Alexandra Alexakis on the colors and Neil Utake on the letters. Now, hopefully I did okay with that. Let's see how I do with this. First, it starts off with the Next Generation crew. They're kind of on their way to assist in an evacuation of an entire planet when they get sidetracked a little bit. And for a good reason. This isn't like, it's not like they were trying to pick out bronzer for data or something like that. There was actually something pretty significant that happened. Now, the ship does suffer minor damage in this, and it also gives them plenty of data to analyze. Now, most of the early part of this book is just them trying to figure out what the hell is going on, which does make it kind of drag out a little bit. But if if you're a Star Trek fan, that's one of the things you love, right? The the investigational part and trying to figure out the science of what's going on. So if that's one of the things that you love about Star Trek, then you will definitely Love this. But we kind of find out that the Q is involved. And now, obviously, it's Q conflict with the letter Q. That shouldn't surprise you. Now, Picard actually tries to get to the bottom of this. And once he figures out what's going on, he kind of gets sucked into something that he wasn't expecting. And unwittingly sucking a lot of other people into the same exact thing. He he really isn't alone in this, though. We end up seeing a lot of familiar faces from the Star Trek world. This being a crossover should be no surprise. So it's not like it's shocking when you see it, to be honest, especially since you know that this is a crossover event. But once you find out what's going on and what they're going to be doing, that's where the intrigue of this story kind of comes in here. I mean, this is, you know, you've got worlds colliding, and I guess maybe 
one of the titles should have been the Star Trek games. And I don't think that's really spoiling anything, but take that for what it's worth. Like I said, the issue starts off kind of slow, but I mean, everything, once you realize the Q is involved, and once they realize it, actually, that's when things start to pick up. The art's a little bit flat for my taste, not really my cup of tea, but there's nothing really wrong with it either. And it's, but it's clean. I mean, there's that. And the colors are very, very well done. So I, I'm certainly not upset. It's not, it's not off-putting, but it's just not my cup of tea either. It, it, this might be art that you think is is really, really good. Just not my cup of tea. So, I'm, so that's basically what, how I can judge it. My opinion, though, of this book as a whole, really hinges on exactly how much the next issue will pick up the pace and exactly what we're looking at here with what we're being presented in this crossover event. I know that's kind of vague, but when you're doing spoiler-free, these kinds of things are going to happen. You know what I mean, though, if you've if you've already read the book, is that, okay, here's what you're giving me, but what is this going to look like when it actually kicks off, which we assume is going to be happening in the next issue? So this is a shaky pickup for me, though. This is one I could see bailing on if I'm not interested in the next issue, but it's also one that I could see being really entertaining based on the next issue, too. So we'll have to see what happens. How about we dive into Dynamite Comics now and Red Sonja number one from volume five, written by Mark Russell. We reported on the story not too long ago, so we're finally getting our hands on the issue. These names are hit or miss, so let's go for this. It's it's Mirko Kolak on the illustrations, Debrala Kelly on the letter, on the, excuse me, on the colors, Hassan Ostmane Elahu on the letters, and Amanda Connor and Paul Mounts on the cover art, again, apologies for butchering anyone's name there. Now, really, who says you can't go home again? Because that's exactly where Red Sonia kind of finds herself fleeing. I say fleeing in air quotes because it's not really that. It's almost like I've kind of got nowhere else to go, and I feel badly about myself, so I'm just going to go home type of situations. There's a conflict. Her mentor's life was taken so she's really searching at this point, she's almost soul-searching, kind of. It's, it paints her in a different light, for sure. Now, she ends up back at the place of her youth, has no idea that a man calling himself Dragon the Magnificent is trying to take over the world piece by piece and turn people into basically his citizens-slash-servants-slash-mindless morons. Now, once Red Sonja jo- rejoins the Hurricanians, and that's the best way I can think to pronounce that, it seems like a, it seems like it's going to be a happy homecoming until she realizes she's kind of getting in way deeper than she would have anticipated or even realizes. She while things are happening around her, she's even trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And and then she's once she finds out it's kind of too late sort of thing. So she does find a reason to stay and fight though. That much I can tell you. It's not like she says, "Well, screw this. I don't have to do this. I'm leaving." No. She actually has a reason to be there at this point. Pretty darn good one, too. It's one of the biggest spoilers of the book, actually. Now, once she realizes that Dragon is headed her way, she kind of sends him back a message that really pisses him off. And that's kind of really where the story is going to get started. But I got to say, the most enjoyable part of this story is kind of how ridiculous and full of himself Dragon really is. And the rules that are set for the Xamarin are kind of just out there and just stupid but it's funny at the same time I did not think for one moment that this book would make me laugh but it really did I don't expect that from Red Sonia I expect you know 
you know, grittiness and war and a lot of action, but there wasn't an action overload in this book yet. I didn't feel like I was really missing anything. So uh, painting things in a different light, it, it almost reminded me, and take this as a, take this as a compliment or not based on this, the Mummy movies that Brendan Fraser were in, which I thought, I thought they were pretty darn good. That's just me. I mean, were they cinematic masterpieces? No, but there was action. I was entertained. The title characters were good. That's all I kind of really needed. Back at, back at the time those movies were out, that's kind of what was done. And this kind of felt like that a little bit, but with Red Sonja involved. The art was really detailed, gave everything a really a dirty and a war-torn feel. But then at the same time, you had the writing that kind of brought a little bit of brevity to it and brought a little bit of, of a light humorous side. So you combine those two things together and you kind of really ended up with something pretty good. So you could really feel the desperation, but at the same time, it's like everybody decided it was okay to joke about the way the world is sort of thing. It's like, you know, things suck, but we could still have a little bit of fun with it. So this is a poll for me. I actually really enjoyed this. And I thought Mark Russell brings something different to the table with the character and a story like this. So I'm all in for this. I can't wait to find out what happens in the next issue. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to sit down with McKinley Belcher III and talk about the passage in Anthony Carter's big episodes coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Mark Paul Gossler from The Passage on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, The Passage is good. You should know that by now. And you know that this guy is good as well. So happy to talk to Anthony Carter himself this week on the show. McKinley Belcher III. McKinley, what's up, man? Hey, man, we're doing pretty good, too. Now, I've talked to quite a few of the members of the cast already, actually, and on more than one occasion, they've actually said that they've not seen the upcoming episodes. So have you kind of been experiencing some of these episodes for the first time as they air as well? Uh, I have. Everything but the pilot. I saw that one in advance. But everything else I've experienced with the general public, which is kind of cool. It's exciting. How cool is it to be able to do that and, you know, do the whole live tweeting thing with the fans? It's got to be a blast, right? Yeah, I love it. You get a chance to see, like, how people are responding to the show and, like, answer questions and and, and just get wrapped up in the excitement of it all. Absolutely. So let's dive right in a little bit here. I love how we've kind of been getting to see virals on the show at kind of different stages of their transformations. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that Fanning's patient zero, but how cool has it been to be able to kind of tell Carter's story so early on in the process of the experiment. It, it, it's been really exciting and eye-opening in some ways. It's like, and in some ways, just like I am, uh, he sort of entered this situation not knowing exactly what he signed up for. And he's learning as the audience is learning exactly what's happening to him. Uh, so it's sort of, it's a slow reveal. And in this upcoming episode, it, it's going to be especially interesting because some things hit the head. Now, I'm sure that you see some of your fellow cast members on the show, these incredible transformations when they do their whole viral transformation thing. Is that something that you're kind of mm-hmm. potentially looking forward to, or do you kind of hope that Carter can fight this as long as he possibly can? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping he fights as long as he can, especially this next episode is, is probably when the fight becomes the most difficult. <laughs> but I am envious of a lot of the other cast members because that, it looks like a lot of fun. Now you've had su- you do have such an amazing cast on the show. It's one of the reasons that I love the show, especially Sinai Sydney, who's just been incredible in every episode so far. Now we kind of saw the beginning of their pen pal relationship in this last epico- episode, McKinley. So talk to us at a- talk to us a little bit about that early bond that they seem to be forming. Yeah, I think they're both in a really desperate situation, and and as an actress, I'm just constantly amazed by Sinai. 
but I, I think that's just going to be a beginning of a very important friendship, and, and hopefully they'll be able to help each other along the way uh, as they navigate this transformation that's happening to them both. It's funny you say that because there just seems to be something about Sanaya too. I talked to Mark Paul about this and how great their chemistry is, and now it seems like just in one episode there seems to be that instant chemistry between Amy and, and your character um, Arthur uh, Anthony Carter as well. Is is it just Sanaya? She just have that just like kind of for uh, you know pun intended infectious personality. Yeah, it has a lot to do with her. I mean, the first time I met her, I just all I think about is light. Like there's just a lot of light. Uh, to her, and she brings that to um, to her character, and uh, uh, I think Anthony Carter, and specifically where he is in this coming episode, is in need of some light. Uh, from being on death row to coming to Project Noah, it's been a lot of darkness, and, and I think we'll get a sense of how he got on death row. Uh, so that light she brings is incredibly welcome. Talking to McKinley Belcher III from Fox's The Passage. Of course, he plays Anthony Carter. Make sure you're watching every Monday night at 9 o'clock Eastern on Fox. Now, McKinley, let's talk about that for a second, because coming up in this episode, we get to see Carter's backstory and how he ended up on death row. But, I mean, so far, he just, he seems like such a good guy, and so far from someone that would, you know, kind of cross that line. So how do you think fans will react when they see when they see exactly what transpires in this episode and do you think carter's a different man now than he was then i'm really excited to see how people react i think i think a lot of the things that are in his story and history are going to be surprising and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to take the role because i think in him lies a really great opportunity to subvert expectation i mean you take you take the image of like a young black man incarcerated and especially on death row. And I think that can come with a lot of baggage, but he's a lot more complicated than the simplicity of of that image. Um, And so I'm I'm excited to sort of unpack and sort of turn that image on its head. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. And uh, I'm excited about pulling back the layers. How much do you think he's changed as a person since the person we see in the backstory and the Carter that we're seeing now in, in this in this current version? I think there's always been a sort of a pure center to him. Uh, but like being in jail, being on death row, and the things that happened to him to get him there have maybe hardened his exterior in ways that, that uh, in some ways just are like coping mechanisms is how we deal with, with life as it comes at us. Very but actually his, his outside has been harder in some, but... It's a soft, gooey center. Yeah, he seems like a teddy bear, man. It's just you, you find out that he was on death row. I'm like, how? So that's why I'm so jazzed for this episode. I'm like, this guy's such a teddy bear. How on earth did he end up on death row? Now, let's dive into something else a little bit here, McKinley. Now, I was talking to Brian Howie last week about that bar uh-huh. scene in episode two where Carter meets Babcock and Fanning for the first time. So I got her take on it. Now, since I'm chatting with you, I want to get your take on it. How intense was it? shooting that scene it was trippy man like i i that was pretty early on in the shooting process and i feel like it gave us and me especially a a sense of what is possible in those mindscapes like because it's a sort of uh, alternate reality and you're in your head in a way there's just a lot of like storytelling possibilities and watching fanning act on carter and in the way that he was uh mentally manipulating in some ways it's just an exciting option to have for storytelling. And it's cool as an actor because it's like 
there's a lot more possibilities in that realm than are in like the sort of naturalistic reality. It's interesting that I would, and this I just thought of this is that it seems like out of everyone who's experiencing these these dreams or alternate realities, Carter seems to be handling that the better than anyone. Certainly better than Richards. We saw it happen to to Brad in this last episode. Why do you think he seems to be handling this a little bit better than some of the others have? I think as just a person that there's a sort of fortitude that he has that uh, he's already had to weather so many tragic and traumatic events in his life. So I, I think at the core of him is a very strong sensor. And like, I know who I am simply that, that he's not rocked by some things. But, but I, feel like, I do think gradually um, as they start to happen more frequently, they do sort of rock him a little bit. Interesting, interesting. Now let's talk about Brad for a second, though, Mr. Walgas himself, because you tweeted something at that moment that Carter kind of sees Walgas being ca- that he's captured as well, and I believe you said, and I quote, "When the captor becomes the captive," with the hashtag Karma. So, do you ever see Walgas being able to make up for the make things right with Carter, or is it kind of too little, too late? I hope so. I hope he's able to find some sort of redemption. And and I have a feeling that's going to be linked to Amy, uh, to Sanaya's character. I think as their relationship evolves, that, that there's going to be some common interest there. And maybe that'll be his opportunity to step up to the plate. I feel like you guys are forming a real good team here, McKinley. I feel good about this. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of this team, too. Speaking of good teams, we each other well. <laughs> speaking of good teams, I mean, it's hard not to talk about Super Sunday that's going to be happening this weekend. I don't know if you're a football fan, McKinley, but let's kind of tie this in to the passage a little bit. Do you think that Tom Brady has been so successful for so long because he's really a viral? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> he's like mind saving as he's playing in his opponent's head. <laughs> we, we need an explanation at this point. I'm just at the point now where I, I need to know what's going on here. That's funny. <laughs> Now, despite how serious the show is, McKinley, and I mean, there's some intense moments, I'm sure, that that you that happened while shooting that we haven't even seen yet. The cast really seems to enjoy yeah. kind of hanging out with one another and having some fun. So were there any funny moments behind the scenes that you can tell us about or maybe even some pranks that happened during filming at some point? Sonia is so funny. Uh, uh, <laughs> there are a couple of scenes where, like, like, between setups, she'd like, be hiding or like we would just break out into song and dance. So those days are always fun. But, like, uh, aside from that, I feel like it, it's rare that you're in a cast of people where, like, there's not a sour person in the bunch. So, like, everyone's so nice and, like, agreeable and, like, just roll up their sleeves and let's figure this out and work together. Uh, and it is cool for us all to go out, hang out and eat and stuff. But I think Sunaya wins when it comes to, like, <laughs> being on set. <laughs> she makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. And, and I mean, it's we're, we're only three episodes in. Can't wait to see the fourth and get to see this guy's backstory. We want to hear more about Carter. We're going to see it this yeah, Monday on The Passage, 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox. But then once you see it, watch it again on the Fox Now app. Watch it now on Fox.com. You got Hulu. Do that. Whatever you need to do to watch it a million times, do that. Thank you so much to McKinley Belcher III and Anthony Carter himself for joining me this week to talk about The Passage. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, man. That's going to do for my chat with McKinley Belcher III about the passage on Fox. Make sure you're watching this Monday night. Up next, my spoiler-filled review of The Reign of the Supermen from Warner Brothers in DC Animation. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I can't remember the last time I actually looked forward to a sequel for a direct-to-video release, but this one was definitely one of those. going to be a spoiler-filled review of Reign of the Superman from DC and Warner Brothers. The animation, of course, it is the sequel to Death of Superman that we talked about at San Diego Comic-Con this past year. And and I say that because of not only just because of how Death of Superman ended, but because this is the, you know, time where you got to find out what's going to happen now that Superman is gone. And what happens is is you have a ton of supermen that think that they are going to jump in and fit them all. Now, I'm not going to go through every little detail of this movie. I'll just talk about some things that I liked and maybe some things that I didn't like. If I can find any. So let's start with this. I want to start with Lois Lane because I thought Rebecca Romaine's Lois Lane was one of my favorite things about Death of Superman and the relationship that she that was built between Lois and Clark. And of course, it helps that her real life husband, Jerry O'Connell, is actually Superman in the movie. But, you know, let, let's just let's just put that to the side for a second, because obviously we have no Superman at the beginning of this movie. And movie. And I'll say this at the very beginning. It's still very, you know, raw for Lois. And she's not at work. She's packing up the apartment. But there's a real moment where you see Lois's last... She gets the note with the last secret from Clark. And you see this moment where it all just becomes real to her and she breaks down. And you're talking about Lois Lane, one of the most toughest nails female characters, not just in DC, but in comic books in general. I don't think I'm overstating that. If I am, at us. At Down and Nerdy 757. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. But you see her break down just a little bit. And I say a little bit because you, Mom, Pa, Kent show up. And all of a sudden, it's it's like she she gave herself that moment to break down and grieve. And then she's right back to being Lois Lane. She's going to investigate what's going on and who these supermen are, and if one of them might really be Clark. She just jumps right back into investigator mode. I'm not even going to say reporter. We know how great of a reporter she is. A great investigator as well. And just how she just keeps on going. The the And it was she was funny too, the awkward moment with Wonder Woman where, you know, she where Wonder Woman thinks that it's going to be a gal pal moment, and it's really not. She's just fishing for information. But they end up becoming friends later on. And then you've also got... In that final battle between, spoiler alert, Superman lives, and uh, and Cyborg Superman, you get that final battle, and she jumps right in there and pretty much saves the day, if you want to be really honest about it. I mean, Superman did the the end of the work, but she, if she doesn't expose the yellow sun, then that's pretty much it, don't you think? It didn't look like that was a battle that Superman was going to win, so I, I mean, just... The way, and this to the writing team as well, Jim Krieg and the bunch, and and just everybody involved in the production here as well. I mean, from Sam Liu to to everybody else involved, Brandon Vietti. I, I just got to say, a brilliant job just with Lois Lane alone in this movie because I thought that she was easily one of the highlights in this thing. But the, one of the other highlights for me was Patrick Fabian and Cyborg Superman Hank Henshaw. Not only did you prop him up as a hero in the beginning, and that was weird because you know the history of Cyborg Superman if you're a comic book fan. It was weird seeing him slash Hank Henshaw as the hero in the beginning. So you had to know. Part of you knew it was a little bit too good to be true, right? You knew the rug was going to be yanked out. 
But I got sucked in just a little bit of, wow, this maybe this is really happening. And then, you know, of course, not so much. Looks like he's being controlled by Darkseid. But then, I mean, first of all, before I even get to the whole Superman thing, for him to be able to shut down Darkseid's plan and just rip the thing right out of his own body, right out of his own head, first of all, then his chest, it was, that was a bad-ass moment. Animation or not, that was hardcore, What's, what Hank Henshaw did, Cyborg Superman did, to kind of close the deal, keep Darkseid from showing up because he wants Superman for himself. Superman did not save his crew, did not save his wife, and we see something that we don't really get to see very much in a Superman villain, and that's how personal this vendetta is for Hank Henshaw and Cyborg Superman. Usually it's, you know, world domination kind of thing. It's not even really that personal between Lex Luthor and Superman, if you really want to think about it. The only other one that might have a really personal vendetta against Superman as far as classic villains are concerned is Zod, right? So other than that, yeah, it's just a either you think you're better than Superman, you want to take over the world, you want to destroy the world, Superman's going to stop you, whatever. But this was so, and, and part of this was the writing, but part of it was also Patrick Fabian's performance, was that it just felt so raw and personal, especially in those final moments of the movie where I was getting chills, man, and then that battle was just so uncomfortable at times because, let's face it, Superman, who was not at full strength, was really getting it handed to him by Cyborg Superman, who was at full strength, by the way. So the fact that Supes could even hold his own at that point, I thought was pretty impressive. But the way he's, and I say monologuing for lack of a better term, when he's talking about all the reasons that he wants to kill Clark Kent and Superman, why he wants to rip Lois limb from limb in front of him, because that's what you deserve because you allowed my wife to die. I mean, just that raw emotion. And this is in animation too, by the way, and very impressive for voice actors to do. There's plenty of great ones out there. And Patrick Fabian, as far as performances go, has to be right up there because my God, it was just, like I said, I got chills. It was so incredible. His performance alone almost makes this worth the price of price of admission or price of rental or price of going out and buying the 4K or Blu-ray, whatever you're doing. I'll t- it's worth it. Another performance that I really loved, aside, of course, from Jerry O'Connell, who, who again, in the short time we got to hear him, was fantastic as Superman. How about Cress Williams, who played Steel and John Henry Irons? He had really great chemistry with Lois Lane as well. And the whole... You know, and he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, right? And I liked that. It was a side of steel that I don't think we really get to see in any form of media for that matter. But he stepped up and helped Lois when she really, really needed it. And somebody that was already kind of embedded and already kind of looking into what Lex Luthor was doing. So I really enjoyed his performance in the way that how he was inspired by Superman at one point to, to go ahead and throw on and put the S on his chest, and he has a really funny moment with with Superman as well. Actually, with Superboy, and a, a bunch of the group were, I can't remember which one of them says it was, well, you thought you could just throw this on your chest and become a hero, and that's what Steel says, and then there's kind of a moment where Superman looks at him and is like, really, dude, you're doing the exact same thing. So, and I think it was when they were talking about the Eradicator. 
man, it's just... I can't think of too many times where I've had so many performances where I looked at it and said, wow, that was a great performance in an animated movie. And there, there's been a ton of good ones, but there's been... I mean, even in the short time, Nathan Fillion was Green Lantern. I, I've said it a million times, Nathan Fillion's born to play Hal Jordan in Green Lantern. He just is. And it makes me wonder why we're still not getting a Nathan Fillion live-action or animated Green Lantern movie. How is this not already a thing? I mean, obviously, this guy is born to play the role. Whether it be, you know, he's just so quick. And that's how for you, as far as dialogue is concerned. He's just so quick. And especially him and Flash together. I could watch a Green Lantern Flash team-up movie, I think, all day. I mean, if you want to bring Christopher Gorham back, too, I'd be down with that. Give me, give me those guys. Uh, and the only thing I think I had a problem with in this movie, and it's a very small thing, was when the Justice League, quote-unquote, dies. When that portal falls on them and everybody thinks they're dead. Okay. First of all, you kind of know as a viewer that they're not dead. Second of all, it just seemed like a really quick and... It, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense, and I didn't get the they're dead vibe, and I didn't see how anybody else would feel that way either, really. I mean, I guess in the moment it looks shocking. Like, if you were standing right there and you see it in front of you, yeah, it's shocking because the Justice League is gone. But to think that they were dead, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would have bought that. But again, this is this is literally nitpicking at this point because the rest of the movie was just top to bottom. So good. And I love Rain Wilson as Lex Luthor, too, by the way. You want to talk about somebody who's got plenty of sass behind him. He really does. And he makes you hate him so much. Even in the times where he's saving the day, he's a prick. And I love that about what Rain Wilson does with Lex Luthor. And how annoying was Cameron Monaghan as Superboy, too, by the way. Didn't you want to punch Superboy in the face several times at the beginning of, that, beginning of that movie? But then there's that slow progression to redemption, right? And somebody who, once he finds out who he is, it's like a, a light bulb goes off in the kid's head. And he realizes, okay, I am part Lex Luthor's son, part Superman's son. So which do I want to focus on here? And, and the kid almost gets, you know, executed in this movie by Lex Luthor and you know he ends up being saved by a guy that ends up dying later on in the movie anyway but I digress so I think going forward seeing Connor a little bit more especially if Cameron Moynihan's down to play him I think that would be really cool that would be something that I would actually like to see a little bit more of I'm not sure if we're going to be seeing him in a Titans type of situation or not I know that we've got Connor in Young Justice already, so maybe they're not going to be doing that because it's happening on DC on DC Universe. But I mean, I'd be cool with that too. I, but again, look at all these times where I'm saying that this was a great character, that was a great character. There were so many great individual character performances in this movie. Then you put them all together around a great story, which I thought did the comics great justice too. By the way, and seeing the Eradicator was just awesome for me. Very underrated Superman character. I think is the Eradicator. So I was glad to see that he got a lot of play in this movie. You put all these great individual performances together, and what you have is maybe the best Superman, and certainly the best Superman animated movie, I think, ever. I'm sorry, All-Star Superman fans. I thought Death of Superman was very, very good as well, this new version. 
this one tops it and sequels don't typically top the movies that they you know proceed it this does not happen very often but i enjoyed this so much and by the way also props to warner brothers in dc for putting reign of the superman on dc universe immediately not making it a timed release the same day that your 4k and blu-ray came out you put this out on DC Universe for subscribers. I think they deserve a pat on the back for that. And it pays off because I see this and I'm like, you know, I know this is on DC Universe, but I still, it makes me want to go out and buy this as, as a physical copy. It really does. And this is one of the few times where it's like, man, those extras must be really good. So this is one of those times where I think it pays off for them to do this because it makes it is making me because it's so good want to go out and buy it. And isn't that part of the point of what they want to do anyway? So I got to tell you, 10 out of 10 across the board. As a matter of fact, let's give this 10 falling portals from Dark Side out of 10, right? Because Reign of the Superman, one of the best animated movies, certainly from Warner Brothers and DC Animation, I think of all time. Not overstating that at all. It's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Reign of the Superman up next. Speaking of Warner Brothers and DC movies, got a big story on the Batman up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Daveed Bazoos from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Definitely can't have our 250th episode without talking about the Batman. It's time for nerd news, or maybe more time for... Me to just spout off on some news stories that came out this week because there really isn't much news news, so let's just get to it. Looks like The Batman, that's right, Matt Reeves' solo Batman movie is going to be coming out according to Deadline on June the 25th of 2021. I would not carve that date in stone by any means, so let's just start right there. Also, no Ben Affleck for this one. Ben seems okay with it. He went ahead and did the whole the tweet with comment thing, saying he's looking forward to it. I think it was time to move on anyway. I think that with all the news that's come out, and I don't think this is what Ben kind of expected it would be with when everything started with Batman versus Superman. He had a good run. He was an okay Batman. He wasn't the best, but he certainly did a great job of balancing the two roles at times. So I actually, I'll look back fondly on Ben Affleck's time as Batman. I'm not sure a whole lot of people will, but I certainly will. I thought he did a pretty good job, especially given the circumstances at times. Now, this movie, The Batman, will feature a rogues gallery instead of just a lone villain. I think that's a smart move. Why limit yourself to one? Especially since the focus is really going to be on this noir style detective story and Matt Reeves just keeps bringing that up and keeps bringing up the fact that there should be a focus on the fact that Batman is the world's greatest detective this should make fans excited and I'll tell you why it feels like we're finally getting something different from a Batman movie I mean I'm not saying that you know the whole Batman forever stuff that wasn't different that was campy though we've gotten campy before we've gotten the Bale version we've gotten the Keaton version we've gotten you know hey even the George Clooney version that was very different but hey listen this one feels like they really want to make that focus on Batman the detective and we really really haven't had that yet and if we're gonna do a new Batman solo movie why not try and do something a little bit different. I don't see any problem with trying to break a little bit of a mold here. I know that it's Batman and there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. I understand that. But at this point, 
why not just go for it? I don't understand. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing a nice, good old-fashioned Batman movie where, you know, he's just finding the bad guys and beating the hell out of them. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that and trying to figure out, you know, what villains are doing what. But the fact that we might get something just a little bit different this time, I think is great. The Batman is not the final title. By the way, it's the working title. So it could be the title, might not be. I'm not even sure that there's much point in speculating about casting news right now. We don't know a whole lot of the details of, you know, when this is going to be set and how old Batman's going to be or anything like that. So not sure that it's worth speculating on on casting right now. So let's save that until we're a little bit later on in the process because, you know, I could throw out a couple of random names. I've seen a few random names online already. I just think it's way too early in the game. And not only that... How often do these names actually pan out? And I also think it creates unrealistic expectations for whoever ends up getting the role because that's one thing that, you know, and I'm guilty of this sometimes too, that, you know, sometimes you just, you get your heart set on saying, I think such and such should be Batman or I think such and such. Like the whole Josh Gad is Penguin thing seems like that's etched in, that's that's something that seems etched in stone by fans right now. That might not happen. Penguin might even be in the movie at all. So... I mean, I don't understand the point in doing something like that. So for right now, until we get more details about what the movie is going to be a little bit more as far as synopsis or plot or anything like that, I think, you know, let's leave the casting where it is and see what happens. There's certainly plenty of great actors that are qualified for the role. Let's see which one of them grabs it or it could be something that surprises us altogether. We're not done talking about Batman yet, though, because Batman Beyond Yep, that, this is something that made fans scream at the top of their lungs in joy. An animated Batman Beyond movie is going to be coming. Geeks Worldwide first to break the story after the concept art leaked, and then it just couldn't be hidden anymore. This will be a theatrical release, by the way. There's not much details, of course. There's going to be, looks like they're looking at a 2022 release date. This is clearly a response to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, seeing how well that did and how well animated movies are being received by fans in general of all ages. I'm surprised it's taken this long for something like this to happen. Not necessarily a Batman Beyond movie, but for animated features in theaters to actually become more of a popular popular thing when you're not talking about like Disney or something that's skewed more towards kids. And I'm not saying that this won't be, and I'm not saying that into the Spider-Verse didn't have a little bit of a skew towards the kids towards kids as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what you're doing here is is you're you're giving animation more of a platform to be like, you know what? We could just put out an animated movie. It doesn't have to be for kids. It could just be for everyone. And we'll see how it goes. I don't think that the Lego movies are necessarily exclusive for kids either. I think that that's something that a lot of different people can enjoy. And I think it's written for adults and kids for a reason, because you know, as someone that that has already tried, has already taken a toddler to the movies, I I don't need you know an hour and forty five minutes of Baby Shark. I just you know I want something that I want to be able to enjoy as well. And I think that that's something that we should see more of. And this you know might be one of the starts of that. Now Daniel Richmond, who does a great job on social media, also writes for Super Bros Movies, says that. They look, it looks like they're going to be casting an Asian-American actor as Terry McGinnis. Again, right now, take that for what it's worth. That may or may not happen. Not worth getting upset 
over or rejoicing over, quite frankly, depending on what side of the of the coin that you fall on. As long as we get one of two people for, for Bruce Wayne, I know I just said that we shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it for this particular thing because how could it not, first of all, how could it not be Kevin Conroy or how could it not be Michael Keaton? Give me one of those two and I'm good. You know, you could do almost whatever you want with the rest of it. I think that if you're going to give me one of those two guys as Batman, I'm okay with the whole thing. Obviously, you'd kind of think it should be Kevin, but wouldn't Michael Keaton be neat? I know they've been talking about that for maybe a Dark Knight Returns Batman movie or even a a Batman Beyond live-action movie, having Michael Keaton play Bruce Wayne again. I'd be down with that. I just, you do that, and I'm okay. You know, even if you don't cast them, I'm going to keep an open mind. And I again, I know I'm kind of contradicting myself from what I just said, what, five minutes ago? But I, this, this is a little bit different. you you got to have somebody play Bruce Wayne that's kind of familiar with it in this, in this movie. That's just my opinion anyway. Here's something that could be very, very interesting. And again, something I'm stunned took this long to happen. According to Slash Film and multiple other outlets that are reporting all kinds of different stuff, Warner Brothers is developing... Funko Pop movies. That's right. I mean, you've got Lego movies. You've got all of these different things. Why on earth have we never done a Funko movie before? And apparently there's going to be DC, Marvel, and Star Wars characters that are going to be involved. As a matter of fact, Slash Film is one of the places that's reporting that Wonder Woman, Harley Quinn, Deadpool, Care Bears, My Little Pony, and a few more already kind of confirmed for this first movie. Now, think about this for a second. This isn't necessarily going to be the Marvel-DC crossover that you want and that we've been dreaming of, right? And that's totally understandable because, let's face it, that's never going to happen. That's a dream you should have let die a long, long time ago. But in something like this, this could be that safe space where we could get a DC and Marvel crossover and it wouldn't really matter because this kind of a movie is not meant to be taken super, super seriously and be comics accurate. Plus, give me Harley Quinn and Deadpool in a scene together for the first time. I don't care how you're going to do it. I don't even care if it's stop motion. Give me this because this is something that I think fans will have a lot of fun with. And that's probably going to steal the show Anyway, so why not just do it? Why not just throw caution to the wind and do this? We've kind of already seen this a little bit with, you know, Lego movies have brought Star Wars into the mix and had a little bit of a DC crossover there already once before. So, I mean, if it's okay to do it then, even for a couple of minutes, why not just do it? And, you know, I've seen stuff like, well, what's the story going to be? And, you know, how are you going to do this? And are you just going to have Funko Pop figures on the screen or reasonable facsimiles, and they're just going to be doing random stuff. Who cares? You know, honestly, do we have to think everything to death? Why can't this just be fun? Let's just have fun with this. The story almost doesn't even matter. You know, they will figure it out. There will be some sort of a story that makes sense. If you made the Lego movie work, this is Warner Brothers. They do the Lego movies. They made that work, and they're making it work. They made it work for a Lego movie, a Lego Batman movie, and now they're doing a second Lego movie. They even had Ninjago. You want to throw that in the mix? Fine. There are ways to make this work without overanalyzing it and thinking it to death. They came up with a great concept for the Lego movie, the first one. Let's see how they do with this. I did want to talk about really quickly the teaser that that came out for Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation. 
of Harley Quinn. Now, not a whole lot we can really do here. It was 20 seconds. It was, you know, we barely got a whole lot there. We got to see a lot of Harley, not a lot of Black Canary, not a lot of Huntress, although I do think we saw the crossbow a little bit there, so I'm happy about that. So we don't really get a whole lot other than that. everybody's dancing. Everybody seems to have a good time, and I love how people are trying to grab Easter eggs from this thing. And maybe there were a couple, you know, Harley's necklace and stuff like that. It's 20, it's, it was 20 seconds of, hey, guys, we're starting. We started filming. Hey, we're over here. We're going to show you Harley because we know that's who you really want to see right now as far as the general, you know, not necessarily diehard comic book fans are looking forward to. So here you go. Hi. We'll ease you into the rest of the stuff later. Don't worry about it. And, of course, I'm looking forward to seeing Black Canary. And I'm looking forward to seeing Huntress, Renee Montoya. That's the stuff I want to see. Black Mask, give me that stuff. But I understand that this is kind of easing us in. What it also tells us is, and if you're looking at some of the set photos that have come out in various places, looks like we're getting the Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti look for Harley Quinn. I don't hate that. I think Margot Robbie's going to be her own Harley anyway, just like she was in Suicide Squad, and she did a damn fine job of that. And I love the reports too, by the way, and again, multiple outlets, so I'm not necessarily going to credit one outlet here, that, well, could Birds of Prey lead us into kind of a crossover type movie with Gotham City Sirens? Could those worlds, of course those worlds are going to collide. You're going to have Harley playing both sides. She, you know, she's not going to abandon her girl Ivy. You know she's not going to do that no matter what's happening here, even though they haven't technically met yet on the screen, doesn't mean they haven't met yet at all. So, of course, they're eventually going to have these two worlds collide and have kind of a birds of prey versus sirens type thing, or even team up. Who knows what this could bring? But of course, that's what they're thinking. Of course, that's what the long term goal is. Because the central figure in all of that is Harley Quinn. And DC and Warner Brothers are going to throw Harley Quinn out there as much as they possibly can until you get sick of Harley Quinn, which I would think, if that was going to happen, would have happened a long time ago. So, again, Let's just take this movie by movie. Let's take let's do Birds of Prey first. We know that Sirens is going to be coming eventually. Let's just wait for that. I would actually be, wouldn't be surprised if we get Birds of Prey in one year, Sirens the very next year, and then we see a crossover happen after that or maybe even in the Sirens movie. Maybe they don't even wait. All I know is there's a lot to look forward to and I'm happy about it. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking more Gotham-type stuff. Robin Lord-Taylor joins the show next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jessica Lucas from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know, every time we have a milestone episode, it seems like we're always talking about Gotham. We did it on our 100th episode. We did it in our 200th episode, so why not? During our 250th episode, so glad to have this guy back on the show. It's Oswald Cobblepot himself, Robin Lord Taylor. Robin, how's it going? Hey, man, it's going so good. And, uh, hey, congrats on 250. That's awesome, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You guys had to, had, got to have a little bit of celebration yourselves in, in the wrap for this season. There was a cake and everything. What was that celebration like? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, December was insane. It's, you know, it's five, five years of work coming to an end on the 100th episode right before Christmas, you know, it was just like all of the feelings were being felt. Uh, it was really, it's, it was really amazing. I, I just, uh, yeah, all I can say is like, we really, we went out right, you know, in the Gotham way. So yeah, it was great. 
The first time we chatted, Robin, was actually back in 2016, and there was a lot to talk about then. There's certainly a lot to talk about now, but back then, did you have any idea that Oswald would end up in the position that he's in now and he would evolve as much as he has? I mean, I, I, at that point, probably in 2016, I had an, I, I had an inkling that, you know, I mean, it's just so, it, you know, the, the Reyes did such an amazing job of, of you know, just fleshing out Oswald's story in just the most incredible ways. I mean, you know, he's one of the most ambitious characters in the show, I believe, and also that I've ever played by far. And so, I don't know, I kind of had a feeling that, you know, if anyone was going to, you know, be right at the top of the heap, it would be Oswald, because, you know, he's smart that way. But but never in the way I believed. And it's just been every every episode that we've done, you know, has, you know, blown my mind in various ways. So, yeah, it's been it's incredible. Let's talk about that smart mind of Oswald here for a second, because it seems like, you know, sometimes we see him on the side of Jim Gordon. We see, we've seen him on so many different sides, maybe on the side of right, maybe on the side of wrong. Do you think his ability to adapt to situations as he need might be his greatest quality? I really do think so. I mean, I think like, I think his ability to, uh, to, to read into other people's motivations is also, so, and, and then to position himself, you know, three steps ahead in the game I think, you know, if, if, if there were superpowers, I think there are superpowers, but, you know, if, if he were not a mere mortal, that would definitely be considered his, his superpower. You know, I, I think that that's always been a experience. And, you know, again, it's just, it's rooted in just a survival instinct. I mean, you know, he's, he was dealt, you know, a bad hand at the beginning of his life in Gotham City, and Gotham City being the rough and tumble place that we know it to be, you know, just forced him to be one of the most you know, calculating, you know, people that's come through the, the Batman rogues gallery. We've seen him be manipulated a lot over the seasons, whether it be, I mean, at Enigma to an extent, Sophia Falcone, the list has gone on and on. Do you feel like at this point in time in this season, Oswald is kind of done with that? His time for being manipulated is over? I do. I mean, I, I you know, the Penguin does have a heart, as black as it may be. Well, that is one of his weaknesses. He, you know, he, 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 he feels things and he definitely wants connections, whether for nefarious purposes or for, you know, even altruistic purposes. He does, he craves that human connection. And then again, that's, that's, that's a weak spot for him. But, you know, as we've seen, like in the beginning of the show, that was so much more prevalent, that was very much on the surface. And what he and how he's grown over these last five years is to learn to, to essentially, essentially, you know, tamp that down, get it under control because, Again, as you see, it's only led to like, terrible things happening to him. He's revolving. But, uh, but yeah, he's, um, yeah I, I would say, like, you know, the story we've always tried to tell is that by the time we finish the show, these will become the super we know. They started out as human beings and then just watching, you know, the, the toll that Gotham City as a city takes on these people, just grinding them down into the monsters that we all knew from the comic books. You know, that was always sort of the goal. And I think we did it there with Oswald by by the end. Let's talk about Gotham City for a second, as a matter of fact. Do you think that there is any city and maybe all of fiction that has come to such a downward spiral, especially from season one to season five, like Gotham has? Is there anything like this city? I mean, you know, you'd have to go to a... You know, like I, I guess some Victorian novels about London probably fit in there or something. But oh yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely meant to be. 
you know, every city in civilization has gone through a period like this. You know, it's a dark place. And, you know, the stories and the lore that come out of that, you know, the, I think all of that is swept up and rolled into Gotham City. You know, it's a place where, you know, people, basest instincts come, come alive and, and, you know, and thus forcing everyone to just be in a constant struggle for survival. Uh, it's, it's, that's, it's mythic. It's like it would, it, would, it would have to take a place like that a place so deprived, a place that, you know, to 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 necessitate the black, the the, the dark knight, to to the Batman. I mean, it's he he's created out of this place for a very specific reason. All of that pain, the, the hero that is Batman. Absolutely, we're talking to Robin Lord Taylor, who plays Oswald Cobblepot. Of course, you know that on Gotham on Fox. Make sure you're watching every Thursday night on Fox until the season is over, and then again when it is over. But Robin, let's talk about this for a second. In this week's episode, sure. Pinadora, there's a very real moment between Oswald and Ed Nigma, and, and it almost feels like a moment that, as, me, me as a fan of the show, that I was really, really waiting to see. Talk about what it was like to shoot that scene and just working with Corey Michael Smith in general in this relationship that they've had over the over the course of the show. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it, I love every single scene that I've had with, uh, with Corey. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really amazing. Like, like the same thing that we had our very first scene, the very first scene where Oswald meets in season one, it's a very small scene, scene so, you know, on the page, it could seem somewhat insignificant, but there was just something about the, the energy in the room that day. And also just finding chemistry with your co-stars. Like I've been lucky to find out with everybody, but especially with Corey, there's something about these two characters that in our in our universe of Gotham, you know, it's this, it's this epic struggle between Ed being the head, the brain, and Oswald being the heart and the emotion, you know, like, and putting them together makes the two of them, you know, unstoppable. Um, and it's it also makes them, you know, at times, you know, completely incompatible and, and at war with each other. It's a really beautiful metaphor. And I think... You know, every scene that I have with Corey, um, especially this in this week's episode, I mean, I think all of that comes right to the surface. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, to not spoil, but as we go further towards the end, you know, that just deepens and, and really becomes uh, something uh, – really compelling that that I'm just really excited for everybody to see. Well, one of the real, really exciting things we got to see last week was finding out that, that Ed was responsible for blowing up Haven – on the show and we get to see how Oswald takes that news. Did that kind of change? Cause they were, they were still kind of a little bit, even though he saves him the end of last season, they still weren't quite on a very good footing. So do you think when he found that out and found out, Hey, something's really wrong with him, that that kind of changed things for him in that moment? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, it, 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 well, first of all, it explains so much for Oswald. I and mean, you know, it also like, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it's almost like I, he, he wasn't expecting, something so dark you know granted he was being controlled by outside forces but you know it it it, 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 it you know going forward you know it's again just this dance of like do i trust you and my friend or my foe and you know it's it this is all part of it coming together absolutely now we also see one thing in this week's episode where we have the military task force now that's kind of finally come to gotham so i've got to ask you know Penguin's always been the one that's outgunned everybody, especially in this season. 
So how is he going to be dealing with the fact that he's no longer the top gun in Gotham? <laughs> this is extremely vexing to him. It's, it's so <laughs> frustrating. And, you know, it's so frustrating that it makes him, you know, go to places he would never go in. And that's and align himself back again with the GCPD. You know, it, you know he, he has to... He has to he has to sacrifice, you know, his ideals in order to win. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, it's like <laughs> he's someone, you know, that's very, it's, it's very hard for him to compromise. And then suddenly he finds himself in that position where he has to. It's just, you know, it fills him with even more bloodlust if that were even possible. <laughs> yeah, that, that's saying a lot, actually. I mean, we're talking about Gotham here, so that's, I mean, that's saying a lot. Yes, of course. <laughs> Let's talk about. Let's go back a little bit to the earlier on the season because I, I certainly didn't want to forget to ask you about this, and that is when we see one of the first bodies drop from this season, and that was Penguin finally taking down Tabitha. And to me, that was such an amazing callback. I mean, it was so long ago that we saw what Tabitha and her brother did to Penguin's mother. Do you love that this show is never afraid to go back several seasons to a moment to really cap that off for the fans? Because I felt like that was a moment that was just gonna have to happen at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of my favorites, that that specifically, not that scene, but like the fact that we bring things back from years past is one of my favorite things about the show because it makes, you know, it makes these characters human. It makes them, you know, we're not just plot devices. Like these, these, are, these are fully fleshed out characters who remember and they have grudges between each other. And, you know, although they've been forced to work together in certain ways, you know, Knowing that underneath that, for those years, you know, there were years in between where Penguin and Tabitha were, you know, just talking to each other, <laughs> his mother in his arms, and you know, it's it's to know that underneath all of there, you know, was that simmering resentment and that plotting and just that, you know, again, that's that's Oswald, like not like being able to look into the future and see things. Like he says that to Jim Gordon in the pilot episode, I see things, I can see things, I see how it's happening. This is a perfect example of that. And, you know, again, it just makes this character, uh, makes him human. And, it, you know, and, and, and just it fits so well into just the, the storytelling of Batman. You know, I just, I love that so much. This might be a little bit difficult to answer without spoiling anything, but let's see if we can do a little bit of a tap dance here. As you, as we're towards the finale, which we know is going to be coming, we're all kind of excited and sad about it at the same time. What is your greatest hope for Oswald leading up to the finale? Leading up to the finale, ah, uh, let's see. My greatest hope, my greatest hope would be that he, that he would be able to have a moment of victory, like a moment equivalent to his moment after at the end of season one, where he declares that he's the King of Gotham. I mean, I think uh, I just, uh, there's something so satisfying about that. And yet at the same time, I say that, and then I look forward to it all being smashed away from him because really what I love about the character is when he's scrapping, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's fun and all fun and great and nice and fine to be playing, you know, a guy, you know, on the top of the hill in the golden throne, but really, the fun stuff for me is when, you know, we're rolling in the dirt and Oswald has to, you know, start, he has to get crafty and he has to get dirty. Like, that's, that's the fun stuff for me. So I would say, you know, moments of both of those, I think, are really what I'm hoping for. 
That sounds like a really great plan. Now, Robin, we know that a lot of the country is kind of plunged into the polar vortex right now, and Gotham is dealing <laughs> yeah. with no man's land. So do you feel like a polar vortex is pretty much the only thing you guys haven't dealt with on the show in five seasons? You know, I think if we had gone to six, we would have had uh, Mr. Freeze uh, cook up a little bit more uh, mayhem. <laughs> it would be a ama- it would be so easy to shoot that stuff, those scenes right now. Let me tell you, we would never need no CGI. We using all practical. Yep, that would be They're pretty all, easy at know, this point. Locations, yeah, it would be it would fit in pretty well. Although. I wouldn't wish shooting outside in this weather on my worst enemy. No, it you'd have to have hazard brutal. pay for that for sure. You got to have some sort of hazard. Oh, I, pay. yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I mean, you you're obviously thinking forward. You you're finished shooting the show, but you think forward. Do you feel like at the end of this season that things have a really good conclusion, or do you think there are spaces where? Maybe somewhere in some universe you could revisit this character and revisit this story and, and let it push along just a little bit more. I mean, look, I think we could, we all, I mean, I, I would love to come back to, to this character at some point. I mean, again, he's one of the most complex, it's just been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And, and I owe so much to this character. So yeah, any day. And also like, Dude, like they bring everything back now. I mean, oh know, yeah, like, exactly. I mean, who knows, right? I mean, we could have like buttoned up the whole storyline so that nothing was possible, and I'm sure we could still find a way to figure it out. But um, but yeah, it's it, I I feel like the story that we told with Oswald in Gotham, being the, the fact that it's a prequel, I think we have such a beautiful uh, portrait of this character and and what he went through to become the penguin and and you know i just think that um i don't i yeah i i don't know where we else we could go but but you know if if they had a script i'd be there in a heartbeat now robin before i let you go let's say we were sitting down together five years from now ten years from now talking about gotham is there a singular moment that you think from the show in five seasons that would come to you first and say that's the thing i remember the most oh man yeah, there would be. Um, I think it would probably be involving the stuff. The first thing that comes to mind would probably be uh, the stuff involving Penguin's father, who was played by the amazing Paul Rubens. Um, that was going on as I was having my own, uh, the own loss of my father. And so it's just really like an insane memory or insane part of my life that, it, that, has, that has tied Gotham you know, just directly to my own personal experience. And, you know, there's an episode out there where all of that was happening. And it's an episode that I'll never watch, but um, because I lived it and I want to keep the, I want to keep the memory, you know, separate from the show. But, uh, but just know that like, you know, when, when that episode, it's going to be playing forever. And it's just like, it's a part of my life that is immortalized. And, and in a weird way, it's a, it's a beautiful homage to my dad and to every and to any dad out there and i just i that's that's the first thing that comes to mind for me yeah that was definitely an amazing episode. There's been so many of them, and we can't wait to see how it finishes out. Gotham, you can watch it every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern on Fox. I'm sure that we're all looking forward to the finale and not looking forward to the finale because we don't want this guy to go. He's been such an amazing Oswald Cobblepot. It's Robin Lord-Taylor. Thank you for joining us this week, and more than that, man, thank you for everything you've brought to this character. Oh, you've been amazing. Goodness. 
Thank you, my friend. Your sweet words that carry me, carry me on. Bless you. Thank you so much, man. You know, you hear all the time about people saying, you know, make the character your own. But I think that's kind of one of the things Robin Lord Taylor has embodied with the Penguin character. He's really taken this character in a direction that we've never seen before. Now, granted, this being a prequel, obviously, we've never really seen it before. But at the same time, getting to see the beginnings of what this character was and, and how he interacted with some of the other villains and heroes in the Gotham universe. Now, granted, Gotham has done a great job of telling its own story, but the way that Penguin has been presented by Robin Lord Taylor over the years is one of my favorite things about Gotham from the beginning. And, and a guy who had one of the most brutal starts of any character in Gotham from that first episode right on. And I've just been enjoying the ride ever since. And yeah, I'm a little sad that Gotham's going to be ending soon. But I'm still going to be watching every Thursday at 8 o'clock on Fox. And hopefully you'll be joining me in that as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Fox for bringing on McKinley Belcher III from The Passage and Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham. Really appreciate that. If you want to keep following us, please do. Downandnerdypodcast.com. Go to our website for a whole bunch of nerdy goodness. Keep following us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy. At downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.